Lord, pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds and incline our wills, Lord, to, to see what's there in this passage and to, to find ways that it would really affect our lives today. So we pray your spirit would minister and move amongst us now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 4. But before we start reading, let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, in Acts chapter 13, we have the very first missionary team that's being sent out to reach the remotest parts of the earth. This has never happened before in the book of Acts. You have a few skirmishes here and there. You had Philip going to Samaria and preaching. You had Peter preaching to Cornelius and his household. But now we've got an organized team that the Holy Spirit has set apart and he said, uh, go do the work to which I've commanded you. And so the church now is sending out a team of missionaries to reach Gentiles. Now they're going to be preaching to Jews as well, but primarily the mission is to reach the Gentile world. So this is groundbreaking. This is earth-shattering news. Nothing had ever been done like this before. For thousands of years, the Jews had had the truth of God, but they pretty much kept it to themselves. Now, an explosion of gospel proclamation is going out to all the world, and Paul and Barnabas and John Mark make up this three-member team. So that's what's going on here in chapter 13. Back in the first three verses, we're told that there were prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch, and five people are listed. We had um, Barnabas, which we already know about him, Simeon, who's called Niger, the word Niger means dark or swarthy, many people speculated that he was from Africa and had dark skin, it was just a speculation, we don't know for sure. Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene was in Africa, so this was an African person that was part of the leadership team. And Menaean, interestingly, he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So he was, he had these royal connections. You know, Herod was the, the king over Palestine. He was the one that had John the Baptist executed. So here's a guy who was raised with him in the court system and in, in the palaces and all of that. So you had this really interesting, and I forgot to mention Saul. You had this interesting five-man leadership team from all different nationalities, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, coming together in a melting pot, the church at Antioch, and their, their prophets and teachers ministering together the Word of God. And as they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, two out of the five, for the work to which I've called them. So... We have 40%, 40% of the leadership team now is, is being separated away and they're going on this mission. Instead of five leaders, you've now got three that are taking over the leadership of the church at Antioch and two of them are leaving with a helper, John Mark. So that's where we're at. They also lay their hands on them. They fast and pray and lay their hands on them and they send them out. Now, this would be super exciting, I think, for the church at Antioch. Like, what, what is the Lord going to do? He told us to set apart uh, Barnabas and Saul. He must have a real great plan to use them in some way. And I bet uh, Paul and Barnabas were really excited. Like, what, what's the Lord going to do with us? This had never been done before. This is, you know, an amazing time. Okay. So this morning we're going to focus on what took place when this little missionary band of three members go to the island of Cyprus. 
That's in verses 4 to 13. Now, that, there is more that happened on this first missionary journey, but we're just going to focus on the first leg of the journey. If you have a map in your Bible, usually your Bible will have a map in the back of it. Maybe I can do it this way. Okay, so they, there's the church at Antioch. It's inland from the Mediterranean Sea, about 16 miles. So they traveled from Antioch to Seleucia, which is right on the coast. They, they paid, I'm sure they had to pay a fare to get on a ship, and they traveled to this island here. This is Cyprus. And we're going to be talking about what happened on this island. The island one is a little over 100 miles long. It would take, what would it take? Maybe five days on foot to travel across this island. Okay, getting back here. So what I'd like to do is focus on th uh, four people in our passage. <clears throat> You've got Elamus, who's called the magician, the false prophet, Bar-Jesus. So we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about Paul and how Paul handled a certain issue that arised with Elamus. Also, there's a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. We're going to look at his life and what's taking place there. And uh, the last one's John Mark. We're going to notice what took place at the very end of our story with John Mark and put all these pieces together. So the first one is Elamus. Let's look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, that, that city right on the coastline. And from there they sailed. They got in a ship and sailed to the island of Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, now Salamis, uh, if, okay, if you can picture the island of Cyprus, the eastern part of the island has a major city called Salamis. The western part of the city has a city called Paphos. So it, they started on the eastern end and they traveled all the way across the island to the western end to Paphos, hitting all, any villages and towns in between. They're evangelizing the entire island. And when, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. So they disembarked at Salamis. Then they began their usual practice. They would go to the synagogues of each city that they came into. And they would start their evangelism efforts in the synagogue. Now can you think of any reasons why that might have been a, an excellent plan? They could have done this lots of different ways, but they, they started with the synagogues. Yeah, you've got people that believe in Jehovah. They're already assembled. They already believe in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul said that, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So their, their plan was to go to the Jew first, go to the synagogues, preach about Christ, and then when the Jews threw them out, then they'd go to the Gentiles. But they'd give the Jews the first opportunity to believe in Christ as their Messiah. Also, in a synagogue, it was interesting. In the synagogue system, any male Jew, 30 years or older, was given the opportunity, if he wanted to, to stand up and exhort the people. Or to say something 
to, to address the congregation. That's why when Paul and his team would go to these synagogues, often they would say, brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for us? That wasn't an unusual thing. That was very common in the synagogue system. So they would take the opportunity to exhort them. In fact, they sometimes give long sermons <laughs> instead of a short word of exhortation. We'll see that when we get to what they said in Antioch Pisidia. Paul stands up and gives quite a lengthy message to them. So, Salamis is this prominent city. They start there in the synagogue system. They stand up. And after they have evangelized there within the city of Salamis, they begin moving east or westward, village by village, until they finally come to the western end, which is Paphos in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. So let's just notice all the things we can about this person. His name is Elamus. First thing we notice is he's a magician. Now, you've got two types of magicians today, don't you? You've got the sleight of hand, the illusionist type, and you have the magician who's able to do real supernatural magic by the power of Satan. You've got both types. Like this one over here would be the sorcerer. This one over here would be the illusionist. So they're, they're not doing anything supernatural. They're, they're faking you out to make you think it's supernatural. It looks supernatural, but it's not. They've just learned how to do it. So what kind of a magician do you think that this guy was? Um, but Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, he said false prophets, and remember this guy's a false prophet, False prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So false prophets will show these great signs and wonders. Evidently, Elymas was showing signs and wonders. He was doing magic. He was... Does this remind you of another guy we've already met in the book of Acts? Think chapter 8. Think Philip going to Samaria. <laughs> Simon the sorcerer. <laughs> Remember him? Mm -hmm. he, he, was, he was amazing everybody. Everybody called him the great, the great power of God because he was doing amazing things. But yet he was also a magician, probably also unable to do this not by God's power, but by Satan's power. So the first thing we know is he's a magician. Second thing we know he's a false prophet. We're told that in verse 6. A Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. So if this guy is a false prophet, what does that tell you he was probably doing? In addition to magic, what else would he be doing? He's proclaiming a false message. Not from God. It, uh, probably Satan is at the root of this somehow. He may not know that he was, but he's, he's preaching a message that's not coming from God. It's false. So the magic he performed confirmed his false prophecies. Just like in the New Testament in Mark 16, it says that the apostles went out and preached the gospel everywhere, the Lord confirming the word with the signs that followed. So the Lord caused signs to follow the apostles' preaching to confirm their gospel. It, it seems evident that Satan is using signs of some sort to confirm this guy's false gospel, his false message. Interestingly, his name is called Bar-Jesus. He's, he's called Elamus and also Bar-Jesus. It, it stands for son of. 
Remember uh, Bartimaeus? Means son of Timaeus? Who is the guy who is in the middle cross, but who's supposed to be on the middle cross and Jesus took his place? Barabbas. Son of Abbas. So the word bar means son of. Now, of course, Jesus didn't have a literal son. So I'm not sure if this bar Jesus, you know, it, I'm not sure where it came from. What's that? Yes, that's true. It's pr- that's probably the answer. But it's just interesting that it, it, Jesus is part of his name. Okay, so we know this guy's a magician, we know that he's a false prophet, and we know that his name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. We also know he was with the proconsul. Um, We're told that, let's see, verse 7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Anybody know what a proconsul is? Okay, so so think about this. this. This guy had a lot of power and authority if he was the governor of an, and this island's no tiny little speck, it's a pretty big island out in the Mediterranean Sea. He's governing the whole thing. This would be like the governor of California, you know, someone with a lot of clout, a lot of political power. And here we got these nobodies, Paul Barnabas and John Mark, they're political nobodies. They have no political power. And yet there's going to be an encounter between these, this missionary team and the leading head figure of the island, and the, the proconsul, um, Sergius Paulus, is actually going to become a believer through their efforts, which is pretty amazing that on their first missionary trip, the leader of the island gets saved. So the proconsul had this guy named Elymas, and a lot of times the, the leading government officials would have a court advisor who would be a spiritist or someone that could give them advice and they would be connected to the spiritual realm. So this was not an uncommon thing for them to have like a warlock or a witch doctor or somebody that would hang out and sort of give them spiritual advice. It wasn't good advice. It was advice from the wrong side, but this was not an uncommon practice. It's kind of like even in our day, back in the 70s, um, Nancy Reagan used to seek the counsel of Jean Dixon for her husband, Ronald Reagan, and she was into horoscopes too. So it's, it's not just something in the past. This continues on. People are still seeking direction from the spiritual side, even though it's the wrong side. They should go to the Bible, not to horoscopes. And this fellow here, the, the other thing we notice about him is that he opposed the missionaries. Um, let's find it. Okay, this man was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's opposing the work of God there through these missionaries. He's trying to remove the the missionaries from... um, from Sergius Paulus, the governor. Now, why do you think he would want to do that? Do you have any thoughts on that? If Sergius Paulus, if the governor does become a Christian, what's going to happen to Elamis? He's going to lose his job. <laughs> you know, he's got this cush job being the advisor to the governor. That's going to go away because 
the governor's not going to need him anymore because he has God. He can go directly to God. He'll have the scriptures. He'll have people that can help him understand God's truth. He doesn't need some kind of a warlock giving him advice. He'll have the truth. We're going to read in just a minute that he was a fraud. Paul says he was a fraud and he was full of all deceit. He was a deceiver and a fraud. So a fraud is someone who's pretending to be something they're not, right? They're trying to pull a fast one over on you, a scam artist. That's what I would, right? That's a pretty good definition, isn't it? You're, that can, it can be more than that, right? It can be someone who, like today, rips off your information or hacks your website or something. Uh, they're, they're deceivers, they're, they're con artists. Okay. So let's see if we can draw out a lesson from this magician, this Elamis fellow. Just because someone is spiritual and can do some amazing things, even supernatural things, does not mean they're from God. That's the lesson I draw out. You can have someone who is spiritual, does miracles, proclaims a message that they say is from God, but this guy did all of that, and he was definitely not of God. He was a son of the devil. You can have somebody today on Christian TV purporting to do miracles, having thousands and thousands of people coming to their events, being a multimillionaire. I know one of them who says he's a billionaire, has his private jet and mansions to live in. That doesn't mean that they are of God. So we just have to know that up front. Now they could be, these could, people could be legit, but it doesn't mean they are. We have to look for fruit. So what I would say is, instead of looking for miracles, um, thousands and thousands of people coming to hear them, things like that, let's look and see, does this guy really look like Jesus? Does he have the character of Christ? Is he a humble man? Is he willing to sacrifice? If, if they're going to live in their um, million dollar mansions and fly their private jets, maybe there's not a whole lot of sacrifice they're willing to make. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. We have to be discerning people. And I, I don't even like Christian TV because there's so much stuff on there that I just object to. It offends me. So I don't like it. I, I would rather go see someone who's real than someone who pretends to be Mr. Mr. Miracle Worker and have their crusades. And, but I don't want to, we, we can't also judge either because God may have genuine servants that, that do miracles and preach. So we have to be discerning and we have to judge for fruit, right? So in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many miracles? And Jesus doesn't say, well, you sure did, you genuine child of God. <laughs> he says, no, I will declare to them, I never knew you. De Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So just think about that. They were doing miracles. They were prophesying. They were casting out demons. But they were practicing lawlessness. So the, their character of their life didn't match all this other stuff that they were saying or the miracles coming forth in their life didn't match the, the character. So the most important thing to look for is character. 
It's nice if God can use you to do miracles, but that's not a, a foolproof sign that you are his. If you look like Jesus, that's a really good sign. If, if your life looks like Christ. Okay, let's look at the, the second person in our story, the Apostle Paul. So the first guy, Elemas, the magician, we would say that he represents the guy who turns other people away from the Lord. That's what he was doing. He was trying to turn the proconsul away from the Lord. Paul would represent the person who's turning others to the Lord. So he's there on the island with the gospel seeking to turn people away from their sin and to come to Christ. Let's, let's notice what Saul does when Elymas the magician tries to turn him away. To, he's trying to turn Sergius Paulus away from coming to the Lord. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, and we should just notice that. This is the very first time Saul, we're told that Saul had another name, and it was Paul. Every other time in the book of Acts, he will not be referred to as Saul anymore. It will always be Paul. Huh. And we're going to notice that he becomes the leader of this expedition after he makes his first convert, after Sergius Paulus comes to Christ, from then on, he's called Paul, and he's never referred to as Saul again. Okay. Know what happens? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about speaking, or excuse me, seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Okay, the first thing you notice is that he, he fixed his gaze on him. He was filled with the Spirit. That happens first. As soon as he's filled with the Spirit, he fixed his gaze on him. Now folks, that expression, fixed his gaze on him, only occurs three times in the New Testament. Every one of those three times is in the book of Acts, and every single one of those three times, a miracle happens right after the person fixes their gaze on the person. So the first one is in Acts 3-4, when Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray, they meet the man who's lame, and uh, Peter fixes his gaze on him, and then he says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. He reaches him, grabs him by the hand, and pulls him up. So Peter had absolute certainty in his thinking that he was going to be healed. He fixed his gaze, and then he did this miracle. The second one is here. Paul had absolute certainty that this man was of the devil, and that a blindness was going to come upon him. Another miracle. Not a miracle for good, a miracle for evil. A miracle of judgment, instead of a miracle of healing. The last one is in chapter 14... Verse 9, and here Paul sees a man who is, who is lame from birth. <clears throat> he perceived that he had faith to be made well. And so in verse 9, or verse 10, stand up, up, upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. But he also first fixed his gaze on him, then spoke this, these words with absolute certainty, stand upright. Now you normally wouldn't have, you wouldn't know. <laughs> I mean, you can say the words, but you wouldn't know in your heart that I'm sure this guy's going to stand up and walk. He's going to be healed. Mm -hmm. 
So what I believe is going on here is that their gifts of the Holy Spirit are taking place. The reason he fixes his gaze on him, in other words, he's staring. That's what it means to fix your gaze. He stares at that man. I think because God got his attention and told him something about the man. Got right there? I'm going to strike him with blindness. There's a word of knowledge taking place. And so Paul can speak authoritatively because he, in his spirit, the Lord has already spoken a word to him. Now this is, this seems strange to us because I don't operate in the word of knowledge. It is interesting that in both cases you have an apostle doing it. First it's Peter, then it's Paul. It happens to apostles. And we do know from Hebrews 3, 4 that the apostles uh, worked these signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not exclusively, they weren't the only ones that did it, but we do find they're the ones that we're reading about here. So, it's just an interesting, very interesting, that it, it should tell us this, God is able to do anything through anybody that he wants to, and he can give these supernatural gifts of the Spirit to accomplish what he wants done in any given moment. And he could use any one of us. We, we, had, to, we had to just admit that. Am I so arrogant to believe that God... I'm not going to let God do that in my life. <laughs> so take a look at verse 9. It says, Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, and notice what he says. You might, be, you might think, is this really a spirit-filled man? You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? You think, well, that, that's not very nice. <laughs> he's, he, he's, yeah, he is being extremely blunt, very honest, absolutely direct when it comes to it. It's almost an, a direct frontal attack on this guy, right? <clears throat> well, you know, that reminds me of Jesus. Jesus called people snakes, serpents, whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. Let me see, I, I even have a, a list of them. Hypocrites, blind guides, sons of hell, fools, and serpents. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees. Well, think, think of John the Baptist. He said, you brood of vipers. A viper is a snake. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So my point is that just, if you're filled with the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you will always say, sugary sweet nice things you might say some really hard things to people that will cut could wound because the Bible even says faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy so sometimes the person filled with the spirit who loves you may say the hardest thing to you that will hurt and we have to we have to realize that might be coming from God and I shouldn't I shouldn't get offended or hurt or upset by this maybe God wants to teach me something you know and so maybe we need to be available to say some hard things from time to time. Now, how would you, we don't want to go around needlessly offending people, right? So how would you know when the Lord wants to use you to say a hard thing to somebody? So what is your reason for saying the hard thing? Is it to hurt or is it to help? Do you really want God's best for them? And this is the only way it's going to happen. And I think in Paul's, when he said this to this man, I think he's also trying to protect Sergius Paulus. So by, by doing a direct hit on this guy, he's exposing that he's a son of the devil, he's a fraud, he's a deceit. So this man can be freed from his sins. So, so the salvation of this man's soul is at stake. And so Paul comes down hard. 
Well, let's look at the third guy here, Sergius Paulus. So, just to sum up the other one, the, the Lord used Paul to bring about this blindness. Now, interestingly, it wasn't a permanent blindness. It was temporary. Because he said, you shall not see the sun for a time. It, it, it mimicked Paul's own blindness. Said he had a blindness for three days when he was converted. And, he, and he's bringing this temporary judgment upon this magician. Perhaps he hoped that he would be brought to repentance. And maybe he himself would come to Christ. Um, but then verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed, Sergius Paulus believed, when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So, first of all, the proconsul, if you go back to verse 7, it says that he was a man of intelligence. And I'm not surprised by that, because you would want a man of intelligence to be the governor of your island. Right? You would choose wisely. And because he's a man of intelligence, I think that he was interested enough to find out what this message was that these missionaries were teaching. You know, he, he, he said, I, tell me more. Tell me what you're preaching. What's your message here? He was a man of intelligence. He was willing to listen and, and evaluate and weigh the message that they were actually preaching. He summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear it. And then he believes in verse 12. Now, I find it interesting that he believed when he saw what had happened, he saw the miracle of judgment come upon this magician, but he was amazed not at the miracle, it says he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Doesn't that surprise you a little bit? Mm -hmm. You think he'd be amazed at the miracle that happened, but he's amazed at the teaching of the Lord that he had heard from Barnabas and Saul. The gospel message itself amazed him. That's the one that saves them. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, Paul and Barnabas, I'm sure they had said, this, this is the God I need to tell you about. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. He's sovereign. You are a sinner. You are under the wrath of God. You must repent and believe in Jesus Christ, who is God's Son sent from heaven to be the Savior for sinners. God loves you enough to send his very own son to die in your place. And they, they heard all that. He was just amazed. It, it amazed him that, that God would love him enough to send a savior from heaven to die in his place. So I love that about this story that he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Wouldn't it be wonderful if whenever, whenever we taught the gospel, people were amazed by that and they came to, to be believers. That would be wonderful. So God had plans of mercy in store for Sergius Paulus. Remember back in Antioch when the, the five leaders are fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord and the Holy Spirit spoke and he said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Well, God knew this guy on this island over here, he's one of my sheep. He's one of the elect. I'm going to get him. I'm going to save this man. But someone needs to bring him the message. So I'm going to tell these guys over here, set apart these two fellows, send them out. They're going to go to the island. They're going to preach the gospel. The governor of the whole island is going to become a Christian because he was chosen from the foundation of the world to be saved. And so God sends them people to bring the message so he can be. So, so God was drawing him. God was working in his life to bring him to faith. And again, you've got these nobodies like... Paul and Barnabas and John Mark speaking to the most powerfully political person on the island and God backs them up with, with divine power to bring about a miracle of conversion. 
Awesome. Okay, let's talk about the last person here, John Mark. Look at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, stop right there. Do you notice anything different? Oh, instead of Barnabas. Up until now, it's always Barnabas and Saul. Like if you go back to, let's see if, I think I wrote these. Yeah, okay, 11 verse 30. And they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Or 12.25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Or 13.2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Every time they mention these two guys, Barnabas is always first. He had more experience. He came to Christ before Saul did. He was the leader of the two. Things have switched. As soon as they get to Cyprus and God uses Paul to do this miracle of blindness, it switches, and now it's always Paul and Barnabas. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it doesn't even say Paul and Barnabas. It says Paul and his companions. Yeah, right. So they're his companions, but the one who is really leading this expedition was the Apostle Paul. In fact, that's the way it's going to be through the rest of the book. Like, look at 1343. But if you go to chapter 1343, now it says, uh, the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Or 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Or verse 50, a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So for the rest of the time that Paul and Barnabas are together, Paul is always the first one mentioned. So there is a definite change that happens right here. Um, now notice, back in chapter 13, verse 13, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. That's on the mainland. They're no longer on the island. They're going over to the mainland, Asia Minor, where Pamphylia is. And it says John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this really upset Paul. You know that when you get to chapter 15. It was such an upsetting thing to Paul that he refused to let John Mark back on the missionary team. And this caused Paul and Barnabas to have such a deep rift that they separated now into two teams. Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and now you've got two teams going on. Because, okay, he felt he deserted them. Like if you go to chapter 15, verse 38... It says, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. So he looked at this as a desertion. Yeah. They brought him along to be their helper, and we know that from chapter 13. Uh, where is it? They talk about John Moore. Yeah, verse 5. They also had John as their helper. So he was there as like their assistant to help them in whatever they needed done. Something happened to make him not want to be part of this team anymore. We don't know for sure what it was. Here, here are some of the major thoughts on this. One is that he didn't, he didn't anticipate the hardships of missionary life. And he didn't, he, he didn't want to, to take on these hardships anymore. And so when they got to Perga of Pamphylia, there were bandits over there. There's malaria that's prevalent. And he just said, I'm done with this. This is not what I signed up for. I'm going back home. So that's one thought. Another one is that his mother Mary 
is the one in Jerusalem who had the prayer meeting when Peter was about to get executed. He's feeling homesick for his mom, and so he leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't go back to Antioch. That's the church that sent him out. He doesn't go back there and report because he probably would know, hey, what are you doing back here? You're supposed to be with those guys. You're supposed to be helping them on this. He, he, so he doesn't go back there. He goes back to Jerusalem where his mom lives. So some have said he, he was either homesick or he didn't like the hardships of missionary life. But there's a third possibility. And the third possibility is that notice it takes place right after Paul becomes the leader of the expedition. As soon as Paul becomes the leader, he takes off and goes back home. His uncle was Barnabas, and his uncle was the leader up until now. And his uncle Barnabas was the one that recruited him. And now his uncle's not the one in charge. This other guy is. This Paul guy, who he doesn't even know that well. So there's a change of leadership. He, he was very adamant about this. He, he refused for him to go on this mission. Okay, the, the, the great thing about it is we know that in the end of Paul's life, he did forgive him. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, right before he dies, he says, bring John Mark. He's useful to me and he's a comfort to me. What it does show us is that they did reconcile. This was a period of time where they couldn't, but they eventually were able to get to that point. Have you guys ever been part of a church where there was a leadership change and you didn't like it? Maybe, maybe you can relate to John Mark. I remember when I became the pastor of Mobile Bible Fellowship, there's a lot of people that didn't like it. <laughs> and they ended up leaving. Most, well, all of them did. All the people that didn't like it ended up leaving the church over it. They, they had some solid reasons. I was, I was a brand new pastor and had no experience before. And I was stuck in my, my Bible all day long, seven hours a day. I should have been out there getting to know the people way more than I was doing. So I, I was making mistakes. They, they weren't moral mistakes. They were just mistakes of immaturity in the office of pastor. But, but yeah, they, they didn't like the leadership change. And we just need to, maybe we should tuck this one away because there could be leadership changes in our church yeah. at some point. And we have to, are we going to be mature about it? Or are we going to be like a John Mark and run? And say, I'm out of here. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to follow Paul. Barnabas is my, my uncle. He's the guy I'm following. Well, folks, just what, what I expected when we have a Bible study, it goes a lot longer than a sermon. So it's already 1220. <laughs> let's, let's have prayer and we'll wrap up our time today. Lord, I pray that we would learn never to turn people away from following the Lord like Elamus was trying to do. Lord, give us the grace, if we have to, to confront people like that and to rebuke them like Paul did. Um, pray that you'd make us like Paul and Barnabas who were there just spreading the gospel. Lord, that we would be looking for opportunities to actually spread your truth. Pray, Lord, like Sergius Paulus, that we would see people being drawn to the Lord. Lord, I pray that that would be true right here in this neighborhood, right here in Anatolia, that we would see you drawing people. Lord, use us in that regard. And, and I pray, Lord, that you keep us from, from being offended if you appoint someone as a leader that we're not that happy about. So Lord, we would take the time to be patient, get to know them, get to see their heart before we make these rash judgments. So let us learn from all of these things today, Lord. Let us be more like Jesus. 
In Christ's name, amen.